The Fujicast is an independent loading zone production. The Fujicast. We've been stepping out of the studio a little of late, and as you'll hear in a few seconds' time when Kev joins me, we're back on location. Back up to the smoke again to spend a couple of hours with the new Fujifilm X-T4. Yes, it's X-T4 week this week, but if you're not a Fujifilm photographer, and we're noticing a lot more of you joining the shows these days, uh, you're, you're very, very welcome. We'll also be answering your questions in the mailbag. Fuji, yes, but brand agnostic ones, yes. So we have a kind of a, a club sandwich episode today. A lot of things happening. Uh, some questions, then we'll have some X-T4 stuff. A special guest. Uh, there was a time when we had a fair few questions asking us, why don't you talk to landscape photographers? And now within the last couple of months, we've had uh, three. Well, it will be three by the time you've you've enjoyed today's show because we're joined by Portugal Fujifilm X-Series official photographer Andrew Mumford. He may not sound very Portuguese, and that's because he isn't. But it's a land that sparks his interest in landscapes and enabled him to stop teaching languages and start teaching photography. Uh, today, Andrew has a growing YouTube channel, and for anybody starting one of those, he has uh, some interesting thoughts on where the tipping balance is, i.e. where YouTube starts to perform to a degree that it drives your business. But also, he's a landscape photographer who really funds his business through... Uh, doing anything but licensing, selling books or prints. Stay tuned, as they used to say, to find out how he does and, and what he thinks of a move to an XT4 in landscape terms. A uh, quick hello and welcome to a good few hundred more Fujicast Facebook group users this week who've joined us. If you're new to the show, welcome along. Uh, we think between us, uh, well, there's myself and Kevin, our two admins, Steve and Pete, that it's a, it's a friendly old place, that their Facebook group. Remember the basic rules, though, one of which could have been set down by by our mums, dads, or even grandparents. If, if you have nothing nice to say, don't say it at all. Debate rules, but healthy debate. Even the daftest question, remember, wasn't daft to you once upon a time. And then we love your imagery, of course. It's a photo group, but no mic drop pics, where you simply post something with... Uh, EXIF data and then run off quicker than a sprinter training on hot coals. Uh, context, please. Otherwise, Peter in particular wades in with a, a real-life furious emoji face. And the show also has a special guest appearance again from Fujifilm's Andreas Georgiadis, who returns to the ring. Since it's uh, new launch week, we thought it might be a good idea to pose some questions about the new cam. Uh, plus, try and catch him with a little jab at the end, but as you'll hear, he's just a little too darn practised. Spoiler alert. So enough from me. Uh, somebody prize Kev out of his uh, bath of red M&Ms in his celebrity caravan, and let's start this week's show. But the podcast is sounding a little bit different this week, and that's because we're, we're not in our um, warm, soundproofed studio that we normally do the podcast from. We're actually in London again. I mean, though this time, Kev, we're not surrounded by 580 people all, all screaming and shouting as we start the cast, aren't we? No, not at all. We are, I am surrounded by you. <laughs> and if you can hear something outside, that's a street entertainer. Um, or, or it could be your fan base, of course, waiting for you just outside, Kev. I, know, I never know. When you come to London, you get recognised. Seems like he's selling hot dogs, so I don't think it's anything to do with me. Right, we've got some questions, and then we're going to talk about um, the, the reason why we're, we're actually... Well, should we just talk about the reason why we're actually here first? Yeah, yeah. that would make sense. So we're here because of what? XT4. People kind of knew that was happening, didn't they, really? I mean, it's, it's not been the best-kept secret, has it, of the last couple of weeks? No, I don't think there's a thing as, such a thing as secrets these days in the industry is that it's all it's all it all gets out there in the end um but yeah so we've had a we've had a little play with the uh the new camera and uh i like it 
Do you like it? Yeah, I do. I mean, for me, it's probably got more uh, of the bells and whistles that I would want in a camera. I'd say you probably got more excited about the X Pro 3, didn't you, to, to be fair? Yeah, to a certain extent. I mean, the X Pro 3 is still my, my preferred style, but the the differences between the X-T3 and the X-T4, I, I was very concerned that, you know, coming so quickly after the X-T3, that we wouldn't really see anything of merit. And, um, you know, I was concerned that maybe it would just be like a firmware upgrade. But it's not. It's, it, you know, it's substantial. It's substantially different. Obviously, there's IBIS and there's the screen and all that kind of stuff, which is uh, makes for a very different experience. All right. Well, we're going to talk about the camera in a little while in the show. We'll, we'll just do some regular things that we, we usually do. And then for no other reason, we're just going to go and take this podcast and record it somewhere else. Like, uh, I don't know. Um, Should we go to the pub? <laughs> I thought that was what you were going to say. Do you want to have some questions? And I'll have some questions. Yeah, there we go. So have some questions. I'll pass some across to you. There we go. Right, I'll start, shall I? Dear Neil and Kevin, it's 2020, and I've just finished a week of leave, which is why I have uh, time to do a few things that have been hanging to the bottom of my list for ages. One of those is to write you a quick email to say thank you for your podcast, which is very kind of you. I have a very particular thank you to add for introducing me to Giles Penfound's work. His wisdom has influenced me greatly. Having said that, it's still Kev's line. Your pictures don't have to be good. They just have to be important. That is the best line of the year. I think you've coined the best line of the year. Is that actually your line? It was. Your pictures don't have to be good, they just need to be important. Very good. For fun now, I mostly shoot film. There's a lot of blah, blah, blah online about why film is the best and only medium. Uh, But for me, not knowing what my pictures look like straight away takes all the pressure off shooting and makes it way more fun. It also cuts my post-processing on the computer substantially, which I like. My question to you both... Um, is what do you miss about film photography? Well, I've kind of been here before, and you didn't do film photography, did you, really? No, not at all, so I don't miss it in any way, shape, or form. But I do, I ha- saying that, I have, um, uh, the other night, Gemma and I were watching the Jane Bowen documentary on, ne- uh, not Netflix, Amazon Prime, and you can see, you can just, those, even though it's on a screen, those black and white prints there's something about them that just makes you want to reach out and touch them. Now, of course, that's because she's a bloody good photographer as well, but you can see that it's not just a digital print with grain added to it in Photoshop, you know. Uh, I think that that's, that's the difference. Did Jane Brown ever shoot digital? When, when did she pass on? She, she, she died in 2016, I think. So, so yeah, so she would have, yeah. I, she may have done, but I, I suspect she was well retired by then and probably didn't, but... Um, It's a really interesting documentary. But to answer your question, Chris, personally myself, Chris is in Australia. Um, I don't really miss it, no. Um, It's it's fantastically romantic to use still, and I, I have a Nikon F5, which I use still from time to time. But I can't say I'm, I'm, I miss it a lot. Does it look different when you produce pictures? Does it feel different when you're producing pictures? I think it does, yeah. There's a whole different process to it. And, it, and it's that uh, slowing down process that I think um, I, I enjoyed about it. But I don't necessarily miss it, I wouldn't say. Right, your question. Okay, this is from Ivan Kriath from Skiatuk. Oklahoma. Skiatuk, Oklahoma. That just sounds cold, doesn't it? Skiatuk sounds like somewhere in Greece. Skiatuk, Oklahoma. He says, Dear Kevin and Neil, long-time listener of the show and enjoy it very much. I'm interested in becoming a professional photographer. My main interest would be event, portrait, and possibly weddings. I have no professional experience. I'm a little lost as to how to put myself out there. That first step is a little elusive. I would appreciate any advice you may provide. And then he goes on to say, A couple of quotes at this end of the email caught my eye. He said, P.S., Kevin, my mum, Ethel, uh, 
All right, Ethel, how are you doing? Always tells me to protect my top knot and keep your powder dry. Do you remember we mentioned that? Oh, you mentioned it. What does it mean? No, Gemma always says to me, keep your powder dry. And so I always, I, I, I think that means, you know, don't get yourself in trouble. Don't say things that could come back and haunt you. I'm not sure about the top knot. That must be something to do with the tie. And then he goes on to say, take the risk of thinking for yourself. Much more happiness, truth, beauty and wisdom will come your way. And that's a quote from Christopher Hitchens, 1914 to 2011. Some people didn't like Christopher Hitchens' politics much, but I I tell you what, he was a a very bright man. (laughs) What was the question? Uh, Yeah, what was the question? Um, So how does he get into photography? How do you become a professional photographer? Well... We've, I mean, we've covered this many times in terms of how we both got into it. But ultimately, you know, you cannot just kind of get your phone plumbed in and get a website and then wait for the telephone to ring. You've got to, you've got to get out there. You've got to start making pictures, whether that's portfolio shoots or getting models if you want to do portraits. You know, getting everything out there, get your Instagram sorted, bang on some doors. It's, it's effort, it's grind, and you know, it's hard work, and that's ultimately what you've got to do there's no shortcuts in this there's there's too many people in this industry for shortcuts to work these days it's all about hard work trying to separate yourself from the crowd trying to be a little bit different and if you can do that then the work will come um but you know you have to find that i won't say usp because i don't think there is a unique selling point anymore i think they're all being taken up but you know you need to you need to find something that's going to give you uh, something to sell. Isn't, isn't your USP? Isn't your USP you though? Isn't it? it? It's it's when people come to your website and they they like you. They like something about you as much as your photography. Yeah, absolutely. You know, your personality is part of it and your your demeanour. But ultimately, that's not relevant at the beginning when you're very first starting out. So, you know, Ivan says that he wants to become a professional photographer. How do you do it? You know, that's the elusive step. Um, and there is no there's no book. There's no stage one. Step one. It's not like flying an aeroplane you know when you see the, the pilots and their log books and they're like number one make sure all the doors are shut number two close all windows number three press start and they do that they do they have a log a checklist checklist yeah uh unfortunately photography is there is no step one do this step two do that um it's it's graft hard work and you know but ultimately you've got to get the pictures get them online get them out there if you you know if you're interested in corporate stuff then you know make a uh, a flick of what they call it a lookbook um you know get get several of them printed drop them through doorsteps uh, you know post them go to people stop them in the street whatever you need to do i still love uh, in terms of wedding photography joe busink's story which we've told before where uh, where Joe, when he was, uh, I mean, I think he was about 50, maybe a little bit older when he went into wedding photography. And he took um, some pictures that he'd made. Hadn't, hadn't got much, had he, in terms of portfolio. He took some pictures that he'd made and doorstepped at one of the wedding agents in L.A., didn't he? And, and just showed him picture after picture after picture until the guy uh, relented and said, oh, come in, have a coffee. As much to sort of get you know, over the embarrassment having to talk to this guy in his robes on the, on the doorstep. Well, it's interesting. One, the very first wedding that I ever photographed that was, uh, it was for a friend and they knew I wasn't a professional photographer, but I had to get through the mum. So the mum, and this, this, this mum was um, well known in the, the mum society for being a little bit uh, feisty. So I, I, went, I went round their house and she said, bring some pictures. And of course I had no wedding pictures whatsoever, which they knew. So I just took some pictures of some birds that I'd taken, some penguins, and not penguins, puffins and stuff like that. that I'd take. I find puffins in Marlesbury. <laughs> it was, they were in a zoo. <laughs> 
um, and uh, I took some pictures of the, you know my uh, my friends and family that I'd snapped, and I put them all in a nice little book. Um, I got the book printed so the book looked nice, and I went there and basically said. Your daughter can look like these puffins if you want. Um, you know, nice depth of field to them. They were sharp. They were crisp. And, uh, and, and I did the wedding. And, you know, they were great. They gave me a £50 tip at the end of the day because I didn't charge them. And, uh, and that was it. That's how I got in there. I, took some, I showed them pictures that weren't weddings but said I'm capable and confident of doing it. So your first pictures to, to your first portfolio for weddings was puffins. Yeah. Yeah, don't pick on the puffins. <laughs> Brilliant. And they were, I got those puffins were from um, Torquay Zoo. It's not Tor- or Torbay or uh, somewhere that direction. Brixham, maybe. Chris Marshall, um, Neil and Kevin, love the show, blah, blah, blah. I may be mistaken, Neil, but uh, uh, did you mention on one of the podcasts that you used to shoot school photography? I'm looking to enter into this area of the business in 2020 and be interested to hear your lighting setup, size of backdrops, and any advice you could impart. Obviously, this question presents the risk of talking about the use of artificial light, so not one for Kevin. Well, uh, I, I, you, you are mistaken because Kevin has recently gone back into shooting portrait. Well, we'll come back to schools in a minute. But, you, you're, you know, we, we were out just a moment ago and, um, uh, and we were, um, we, 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 I think we, we walked past somebody just in Covent Garden and they were photographing a model. And you said, what he needs is he needs a light and he needs, he needs a GFX 100. Yeah, well, I mean, in fairness, that bloke was gorgeous, wasn't he? Model-looking bloke with his headphones on. Um, I know what Kev said to me. He said, Kev said, I don't really have a model to use at the moment and, and you're not much cop. <laughs> yeah, but I, that, that's not really what I meant. But, uh, you know, uh, but in fairness, it was like we were walking along Common Garden on the edge of Common Garden there and it was moody grey skies as it always is in the UK. And the fellow, I don't know what camera he was using, big camera, but, uh, you know, it just didn't look like there would be much in that picture. Um, but he was probably, a, a, I don't know, like a, that's the look they were looking for, maybe. Um, but it did make me think. I was like, oh, that picture could really pop. What you need is 102 megapixels, an Elinchrom flash box thing, uh, one of those remote wireless things that go click. And uh, and then a cable or something, and yeah, I I could see that picture. Okay, school photography. Now I know you've never done it. Have you ever been tempted? Uh, no. no, not for a minute. Um, yeah, we did start our career with uh, with portrait work and and a lot of school photography. And I have to say, actually, some of our best December's in business were when we shot school photography. November and December for us, we could take January, February, March off really easily. Um, and that, that's not to sound boastful, that's just uh, to, to really demonstrate, I suppose, just how powerful it is if you get in with a few schools. We, we did mainly preschools, Kev. Boy, was that hard work, because you'd turn up, and if the first child started to cry, thought this sets the tone for the entire day. Um, but we used very basic setup, so we had um, uh, a white background, white backdrop, which we um, uh, would pop two lights onto. And then a key light, just one key light in the foreground, very simple softbox setup, not particularly big softboxes either. These rooms are usually quite light as well. Um, and then we progressed after a while. We used um, one of those light tents. I forget what the actual name of them is now, but you, you stick the light within the tent. Lasterlite. light. Yeah, light. light. that's it. And that's a way of, of cutting down on the space that you need. That was brilliant. We used that. Um, at the time, we were shooting... Um, Canon 5D, I think. 
or maybe a Nikon Nikon setup as well. And um, that that seemed to work really, really well. Um, the whole thing was shot f8, one one two um, one two fifth, I think, something like that. And uh, we used to pile through these shots in a day, um, and that was that was about as complicated as it as it got. Tempted. No, but what I would say is really interesting because I, I know people who do school photography and they do still make a lot of money out of it because every school still has a portrait of every child plus every child plus their siblings plus one of every classroom plus one of the whole school and everything. But what's always struck me about the pictures we've had from our kids and the pictures are lovely. There's nothing wrong with them and we've bought them because they're our kids. There's nothing creative about it, right? Nothing. Uh, and that just, as you were just saying there, F8, white backgrounds, you know, Lester like pop-up box and everything. And I was just thinking surely there must be an angle for doing you know like creative black and whites or you know using um a leaf shutter camera with you know high speed high high speed high spink speed spikes spikes high spike one of those yeah high sync thing in jiggy um and you know there, there must be an angle for that but it just seems like it's so um uh factory boom 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 well, there's two schools of thoughts on this because I quite like the pictures that come out of uh, of Jack and Thomas's school, where they still have the mottled blue background. Um, the child ages just a little bit each year, but the black background never changes. And as a photographer, you might expect me to say, "No, I want something really creative, moody, sort of let let's create Rembrandt lighting and 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 just you know we tried it and we tried some black and white stuff in particular, and parents never bought it. They just were entirely disinterested in fact we tried um i'm gonna get in trouble for, for this but we we tried the kind of preschool where every child is called freddie and tarquin and we thought you know this is a place where black and white is going to sell zippo they just wanted why f8 1125th and that was it it never really sold i had a friend in school called tarquin who ended up in prison and that oh, is yeah. a fact oh there we go it wasn't that kind of school <laughs> Do you want to go for the next question so I can dig myself out of a, of a huge hole? By the way, if you're, if you're listening to this, and you, I, I don't know why, well, you wouldn't tune in in the, in, the, in the sense of radio where you're sort of 15 minutes in and thinking, why is it all, why is it all echoey, echoey? That's because we've come to London, we're trying a brand new camera, it's the X-T4 launch, and we're going to be talking about that camera in a very short while. But we thought we'd get some of your questions in. Kev, your turn. Okay, this one's from David Payama, I believe. My question is, how do you deal with videographers in the weddings? They seem to be everywhere, (laughs) blocking the view of the guests. Everywhere they go, I've been struggling with them, mostly in the ceremony time. I tried talking to them beforehand so we can be in the same place, uh, so we can be on the same page and to not block each other or ruin the shots. But as soon as the important stuff happens, they crowd the area around the bride and groom, leaving not so pleasing spaces for me to photograph. What would you do? Thanks in advance. Oh, uh, see, the thing is, th- this is from a photographer about videographers, and I'm, I'm absolutely sure the videographers, if, if there was a, a wedding videography show, would be saying exactly the same about us. Who do they think they are? They don't own the shoot. We, we've got just as much entitlement to be there. It's about, it's about working together, and, and, and the, I found usually that's it's not difficult. It's not. There's one guy, and I, I threatened to put the picture up last time, and I must put it up. I've still got it. It's on my phone, I think, of the guy that walked in front of the couple while they were having their, their first kiss uh, because he'd got his camera sorted. I showed you that one, yeah. And, and also he tracked them all the way down the aisle on the processional so nobody could get a picture. 
Um, but that, but but then you could have a photographer that's just as half-witted as that do that to to a videographer, couldn't you? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I I've had a couple of experiences where they've, they, you know, they have been pretty much in the wrong place all the time, and and I just you know what, I just get on with it. I move myself around, do my best and work to the assumption that should anything untoward happen, then I'll just have to say to the bride and groom, look, you know, this is what happened. But generally, I have to say, all you know, they're very good. Um, they're professionals as, as we are professionals. They have to do their job as we have to do it. I remember this one wedding, though, it was terrible. Um, they had a videographer there and this was a wedding I shot in Switzerland. And he, he, he just leaning against the wall, didn't do anything, got a nice view of the rooms, just, you know, just got my nerves, really. I'd say that film's coming out shortly. Oh, dear. Um, I, I think when you're working with other people, you, you, the best thing you can do is just be polite to them. Um, this particular guy I'm talking about, when I walked in the room in the morning, uh, I mean, I was never going to see eye to eye with him because he said to me straight away, man, you're in my light. Have you ever worked with a videographer before? Like I'd only shot one or two weddings. And I think he was he was up for a fight, to be honest, from, from the start. But there we go. Would you like me to put that picture in the Facebook group? Should I put it, or, or is it a little bit... Because it's very obvious who the guy is. Well, what you should do is put it in the Facebook group but put one of those smiley emojis on his head. So then nobody will know. Yeah, but then you can't see his Casey Neistat glasses that he was wearing as well. <laughs> Let's just not do that. No, no, okay. Um, right. Hi, guys. Um, well, one more question, then, um, uh, then we'll do something different. Um, hi, guys. Love the show. I shot an interesting two-hour event with vendors the other day. However, under 20 people showed up. Um, it, there was a bit of an e- This is from uh, Joseph a- Abad, and there was quite a long email here, so I'll fill in some detail. Uh, the event, Kev, was harder than just 20 people. The light was a challenge. Visually, the place sounded like a tough nut to crack, to be honest. Um, t- to me, it sounded like, he didn't say, but it sounded like white walls and nothing particularly interesting kind of place. Um, anyway, jo- Joseph goes on. I told my clients that I would shoot this event in a documentary style, so I stayed away from getting in everybody's face for portraits. But what do you guys do when things are a bit uneventful and bare? Do you change your game plan? What do you do for inspiration on site for situations like this? Many thanks from Connecticut in, in the States. Joseph, I think you have to set many stories, shoes and pictures and motion and um, maybe movement and hands and and I mean it might be a bit cliche but maybe something like colours I, I don't know or, or think right should we go now and spend 10-15 minutes concentrating on the work of the barman um, what do you think? Yeah I totally agree you, you mustn't get lost in the, the thought that it's, it's boring because uh, you know, a, a boring picture today could be a, a most powerful picture in the future. But it is challenging sometimes to just to see past the um, the mundane, if you like. And and a great tip is to record the audio. We've mentioned this before as well. Get your phone out, record the audio of the of the, the ambient noise that's going on in the room, and that will. And then take yourself away, listen to that five minutes, and that will give you so much about what's going on in the room. You'll hear things suddenly that you you're not seeing with your eyes, and you know it could be kids in the corner whatever it doesn't matter it could be the the like neil said you know it could be the food being cooked or the waiters or people crashing through the doors uh, you know anything like that and and that will that will give you um kind of collateral to to, to start looking for things but ultimately it's about looking right those people did not employ you to be a photographer 
because anybody can be a photographer. They employed you because of the eyes that you have, your observation skills. Uh, and that's more important when you're a documentary photographer than anything else. So your observation is the most important thing. That's what they're interested in. So, you know, you have to, you can only photograph what's happening in front of you. Of course you can, but you can give your own angle to it and tell a story and start thinking, you know, I've said again before, on the inside of my camera bag, I have, it says, five w's and that stands for who why what where and when and if you're struggling to tell a story you can tell a story of any environment with five pictures you just need to answer who why what where and when then you can go home <laughs> job done yeah job done go home wedding in five pictures <laughs> so uh we'll get back to your question shortly it's an xt4 special today um so well look here it is here it is can you see yeah. Click, 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 click. <laughs> this is the X-T4. We've, we've got to move away from Fuji HQ now because there are, I think, other people are going to test the camera out. We, we've, um, we've got a couple. We're going to talk about them, um, what we like, what perhaps we're not so keen about, and uh, where should we do that? Let's go to the pub. Come on, let's go. We'll see you there. I'm tempted to find a two hours later a SpongeBob impersonator, but the show ran out of cash funding Mullins' first class Malmesbury to Paddington sleeper train ticket. So, suffice to say, armed with two brand new pre production XT4s and hiding them under our jumpers like we'd just nicked the crown jewels, we edged out to Fujifilm's House of Photography HQ to go spend some time shooting with them. A couple of hours didn't really give us enough time to record a YouTube spectacular, but it was more than enough time to form a little opinion. So, coming up on the show shortly, exactly how do you dump your day job for a change of career shooting landscapes and tutorials on YouTube? But first of all, an XT4 touch-and-try deconstruction at the famous Oily F-Stop pub. Kev, this has to be probably London's quietest pub I've ever been in. Yeah, it's nice, isn't it? Very opulent. Opulent, yeah. Well, although we are right next to the loose. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Opulent but smelly. <laughs> right, okay. XT4. It's, la- it's launched. The I think the camera isn't widely available until the spring, is it? I think, yeah, the spring. So it was announced on Wednesday, I think, was it? Or Thursday last week. Um, and we had a we had a little play with it, not too long, but we had a we had a touch and try as they as they lovely call it in feature film world. Touch and try. Um, yeah, and I was impressed with it, I have to say. I think it was, um, I said you know, earlier that it was something that I didn't want it to just be like a glorified firmware update. And, uh, and it's not, you know, it's, it's pretty good. But I think we should split this into two, okay? Um, how would you feel uh, about the camera as a photographer and how you would feel about the camera as a, as a filmmaker, right? Um, let's start with photographic requirements. So um, I'm looking at you for, for an honest answer here. Will it replace your X Pro Three? No, it won't replace the X Pro Three because it's the same sensor, same technology inside. Um, so that's not changed at all. No, no, I, I, I'm led to believe that the XT4 has the same sensor as the XT3 and the X Pro Three. However, it's got much, and we saw that. And when we we tried that camera this afternoon, we saw the the new autofocus and face detection and everything like that. I thought was was a lot better. Um, although I don't really use face detection much, but yeah, I mean the uh, you know the the internal elements of the camera with the IBIS and you know for people that shoot at lower shutter speeds or you know in lower light, it's going to be great. So from a still from a stills point of view, I have to say that if you uh, you know it wouldn't be if I had two XT3s for example for stills, would I be upgrading to an XT4? 
mm, I might be thinking possibly you know or maybe you know give it a little bit of time um, but for me really the the camera is you know it's it's that filming element of it is amazing uh, a lot better than the the xt3 and you know now it's a hybrid really i suppose so you know in my, my mind is all over the place because obviously we've had the x pro 3 we've had the x100v i've bought a gfx 100 uh, i've yet to buy an x100v and you know i've bought an x pro 3 and now i'm thinking xt4 and maybe maybe the xt4 could you know replace the xt3 and then that would be good enough for both my youtube stuff as well as the stills at weddings um which it will be but then do i need two of them uh, do i not need two of them you know i'm just it's kind of we've had a bombardment of cameras recently it's got to be said the the burst uh, rate has gone up it's 15 frames a second isn't it yeah fi- so 15 frames per second the mechanical shutter inside that camera now has been improved and uh, apparently the, the 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 life of the shutter in the camera is like double what it was previously i don't know what 150 to 300,000 yeah thereabouts i mean i i I've definitely taken more than 150,000 shots on my previous cameras. I think that's what it's guaranteed for. So if, if, if you had an issue and you were 180,000 um, shutter actuations, I don't know how they tell it. Um, I think we had this conversation actually with Andreas, but, but, but essentially you'd be in the clear. I think, yeah, I think ultimately what they're saying is that the shutter is more durable. I think that's basically it. Um, but yeah, 15 frames per second is, is pretty much insane. But one of the things that I really... And whisper quiet. And yeah, the, the shutter button is, it's not quite the same as the X-H1, um, but it's, you know, it doesn't have that real like uh, delicate tactile feel to it. The, the button itself is very similar to the X-T3, but the the mechanism is very, very quiet. There's no, uh, you know, you can't, nobody could ever say any of the Fuji cameras are loud, but there's no kaplunk anymore, even on the mechanical shutter. It's it's very, very beautiful. Yeah, very beautiful. Now, a couple of buttons. Here, here, here comes a con- controversy for you. A couple of buttons have moved around and... It's no longer possible uh, with the collar to find one particular feature you use all the time. Yeah, so along the collar underneath the um, one of the other uh, dials used to be the um, uh, photometry ring. So you could choose spot meter in, uh, matrix, etc., etc. And now that no longer exists because they've now got the very, very simple stills and movie um, collar, which is actually very good. Um, I will miss that. You know, I do find myself with the XT range just twisting that collar and moving between the photometry very quickly. But on the same side, on the same uh, thing, you know, I was saying to you when we were walking around with the camera, actually, on all my other cameras, I just have it assigned to a function button. So I'll just do the same. You know, it's just it's just one of those things. AF button though has moved. Yeah, so the AF button has moved across the camera a little bit, and that's I think they've listened to most people because the previous position of the AFL button on the XT3 was always a little bit awkward. You needed to bend your thumb. It was above the little knuckle um, protector. It was it was always a little bit awkward. So now the Q button is where that AFL button was, and AFL has gone completely, and it's now AF on, which is makes more sense, um, and that's moved slightly across. Whether whether that's better or worse for me with my tiny little hobbit hands i'm not sure um but i didn't get time to to check whether that q button is programmable and functionable and whether it can be swapped um, maybe it can but it's not it's not a huge deal anyway but yeah just uh, for all intents and purposes it looks very similar to the xt4 so elephant in the room well not so much an elephant in the room but but the uh, i suppose the the screen is something people talk about all the time now on the x pro 3 
um, the screen the screen was uh, was the was the one big point that people either loathed or, or embraced. We have a flippy out screen that goes in lots of different positions, but it ain't going to please everyone, is it? No, it's not. Let's let's be honest about this. I would say that uh, for ninety percent of people. They will be pleased and 10% of people won't be. Um, you can never please everybody all the time, I guess. So essentially, it's an articulating screen that can come around the side. You can twist it. You can um, rotate it. You can have it facing forward, So, which is what we've all been craving for for on the um, when we're filming our YouTube stuff. Um, what you can't do is just articulate it down so it's just under the uh, the, the viewfinder like previously and, and kind of pointing up at yourself. So, so for street photographers, that's going to be a bit of a bind, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you know what? With the X-T3, when you had the, that flip screen down anyway, most of the screen was obscured by the eye cup anyway. So, uh, you know, I, it's... It's six of one and half a dozen of the other, much like the, the flip screen on the X-Pro3. I think this is much less divisive. Um, I think that, by and large, most people will, will actually love the new screen. Uh, I think that there will be a minority that, that still want it to be exactly the same as previously. Um, but, yeah, I, you know, it's, it's good. It's well, I had experience of the, the Canon 5, uh, not 560, the 60 and that had the flippy out screen i love the way that that thing articulated and i'd always said if only fujifilm could could do that with this camera and they have yeah they have pretty much it's just turned up andreas has turned up it's another special guest appearance check we're saying the right things yes you are (laughs) should we should we split for a drink and then ask some more questions we'll talk about the um we'll talk about the filming of it yeah the, the, the 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 film ability of it so, more on the X-T4 launch soon on our X-T4 special. Special guest time, actually. Now, and over the next couple of months, we've got some real characters for you. And uh, there are two special editions that we have some recordings for already, but require a little more help from you as we move on with this. So, listen up. Number one, we'll be doing a, a special on personal projects. Now, it's a subject we've talked about on the show from time to time. And uh, we both have some recordings in the bag from over two to three months ago that are waiting to be aired on this subject. But to make it into a special, we need a few more fabulous stories and projects from people just like you. So if you're working on a a personal project at the moment you think is a little different or has required some interesting steps to get going, please email the show at the usual address we use for all questions too, which is click at fujicast.co.uk. UK. Second special, and uh, this one is, or, or rather has organically grown from emails received, uh, comments left, and guests who've talked about their own mental health issues. Now, straight away, you know that neither I nor Kev are trained in this area, so this is not some kind of helpline episode in any way, shape or form, uh, but we've heard a, a good few guests over the last year talk about how photography has either helped their travels through life or or certainly shaped a form of recovery or acceptance. And so it's a difficult one for some. I appreciate that. And it may well be that you want to, to share stories without appearing on this special episode personally um, by, by way of sending an email or something. And, and for that, you know, uh, you can contact us in confidence by reaching out to us personally through our own websites or through click at fujicast.co.uk. And if we can find some listeners who wouldn't mind sharing their stories via an interview, well, that's the very same address that we'd uh, dearly love you to contact. So think about that. 
back to this week. Uh, you said more landscape guests, please, Kevin Neal. We listened. Although, like buses, we've had quite a few arrive in short succession. But that's all good. Uh, this week, I'd like to introduce to you uh, Andrew Mumford, who's carved a career in the last five to six years out of working with his first photographic love, landscapes. But as you're about to hear, one of Portugal's official ex-series photographers doesn't sell frames and books to make his living. He tours, probably what most would describe as living the photographic dream. You've had a bit of wanderlust in your, your life, uh, Andrew. You're a, you're a British lad who ended up living in Lisbon, which explains the Portuguese ex-photographer status, of course. Is, is Portugal the resting stop now, or is, or is that suitcase tapping at your conscience at all? No, I am Portugal. I've been here for over 20 years now. I've actually lived more of my life outside of the UK than I did in the UK. So, yeah, I mean, I, I first arrived in Lisbon in 96, uh, stayed a while, then went back to London, then came back again in 98 with the intention of staying here a year, and I've never left. You were a teacher, weren't you, prior to photography? So were you teaching in Portugal? Was that, was that the reason yeah. you were there? <clears throat> That's how I ended up here. I, um, I was teaching English as a foreign language, and I, I did it in a couple of countries. I worked in, in Greece and, and briefly in Italy, and also I did that in, in London. Um, but, yeah, that's how I ended up coming to, to live in Portugal was to teach English. So w- with regard to teaching, um, I mean, obviously that, that must help with your, your skills in the workshops that you organise now photographically. But what, what actually, where was that gap? How did it close? What brought you to photography from <clears throat> teaching? I, there's not, there wasn't ever really uh, a connection. I, I always wanted to travel from being a kid. Uh, we used to do camping holidays and stuff like that in France and, and, and Switzerland. And I just, I just loved being, I just loved traveling. I loved seeing new places. And that was always something inside of me. And at university, I ended up studying uh, economics, which I had not really a lot of interest in. And all I wanted to do when I graduated was just find a way to travel. And yeah. I, I, ended, I kind of fell into teaching that way because it was a way of, of, of traveling and working and, and living in a place. I didn't, I didn't just want to kind of like bum around. Um, so that's how I ended up in teaching. And uh, I just, I kind of just, fell in love with photography on on the side it was just from going to places you know i would still travel when i was here i'd like go for you know on on a trip to new york or whatever and my and i just love taking pictures but the pictures were always rubbish and i remember when i was a kid and we knew we used to use that you know we'd have like the family instamatic on holidays and you'd have you know you take the pictures in to be developed yeah. and they'd come back and and they'd always be the ones that my mum my or dad would use the expression well, this one hasn't come out very well. <laughs> uh, so most of my digital photographs, and these were with, you know, sort of like a, a three megapixel point and shoot 15 or 16 years ago, they, they didn't come out well. No. And I kind of got to thinking about what it was, you know, about that, what, what made photos, some photos work and other photos didn't. And I started reading up online and then I just got really absorbed into it and bought a better camera and then learned more and then bought a better camera mm. And uh, just got really into it as, as a hobby. <clears throat> and then because of where I lived in Portugal, the place that I most liked to photograph was the coast. I lived very close to the ocean. Mm. So I would go out and just practice photography, doing waterscapes, capturing, capturing the ocean where I lived. And I, and I just really fell in love with the process of it, with the being out, because it connected with, with things that I enjoyed doing, with, with things like hiking and stuff like that. So I was always doing trips and traveling with my wife and shooting around Portugal and building a portfolio. And that came over time. 
And as I got more and more into doing photography, what I could do in my job was step back. I sort of went part-time and then went down to doing a few hours and was doing both of the jobs side by side. Well, a landscape's a very special genre. I mean, I, I think it takes a, a special kind of photographer because, yeah, it calls upon patience, calm, measured approach, and all, all and even more patience, and all, all that, that kind of thing. But I, I would assume it's probably one of the hardest genres from which to pay a mortgage. I think what I've, what I've learned with landscape photography is that you to put it in, in very boring terms, in terms of of, um, of of earning a living, there's you're selling really uh, an experience or a process rather than a product because there's very little. It's very hard unless you're an established photographer with a big name, someone like Art Wolf or Joe Cornish, to to make any significant income from from selling prints. Or and licensing now is 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 a very low income area. So things like workshops. And, uh, and videos and things like that. And also YouTube is an incredible thing for providing an income. Um, the, I think the social media and internet has kind of opened the whole world up and it's, it's made some avenues um, much harder because the, the sheer volume of photography out now has, has pretty much destroyed licensing or made licensing and prints a much, uh, it's much harder to make an income from that now because yeah. there's, such a high, a high volume of incredibly good photography out there. So naturally, the, the market's sort of saturated, if you like. Now, we spoke to Thomas Heaton um, a couple of weeks ago on the show, and, and I think he's been uh, with his channel a little bit longer, I think, because your um, your your channel is building a, a healthy amount of subscribers now. 50,000 is a good amount of subscribers. I want to investigate this YouTube thing, because we seem to meet this more and more regularly on the show, actually, Andrew. Um, where where is that that magical figure of subscribers where you think okay well i can turn this now into a business because it drives people that want to come on workshops or or other avenues where where is that point i honestly don't know uh, i i think it works differently for everyone thomas heaton is a i think anyone who does what i do owes an enormous debt to thomas heaton because he was kind of the guy who who opened the doors for um for landscape photography on youtube and uh, what's the expression? The rising tide lifts all boats. Yes. And, <laughs> and I think, you know, because no one just watches one person on YouTube. So, you know, he, he basically created uh, a whole market for people. Now, I there are different ways of using YouTube. And I think um, I'm not – Thomas is someone who, who I think is quite – has a very natural ability to go out and shoot and produce videos. Mm. I find that takes an incredible amount of skill to be able to split almost your mind in half to be working on photography, but also have the other side of your mind creating the video at the same time. And I've always struggled with that. And I'm not particularly prolific with videos. I don't produce one a week or something like that. It, it's generally somewhere around once a month mark. So my, the growth of my channel has been a lot slower because of that. But I found in terms of being able to, to sell workshops, it, it started to happen I would say around the 15,000 mark, you know, if I, if you wanted to put a number on it in terms of subscribers, yeah. when the, when there was sub, but it's, it's, you know, when people, when you, when you can put a video out and the video is going to be seen by a few thousand people, you know, that from that, a few thousand that you, that there's going to be hopefully a couple of people who are going to be interested enough to, to contact you and, and, yeah. and want to do some, to do a workshop. 
Right, cameras on the table. Yeah, you okay. sw- you swapped out of. Uh, do you do you pronounce it as Nikon in Portugal or is it Nikon? I, I don't know. <laughs> I really don't so anyway, know. you swapped out of Nikon, 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 tomato, tomato, whatever you call it. Uh, I think probably people will be annoyed by a, that. <laughs> okay, but why Fujifilm? So I had someone on on a one to one workshop who had a had an XT one, uh, and I was kind of she was shooting with it, and I thought it's a cute looking camera, but it's I didn't really take it seriously. Uh, but I thought it was cute looking, but I, I, you know, she sent me some of her images later on and I was really quite impressed with them. And then we, we had some visitors, my wife and I from, from the States. And this guy came along with an X100 and an XT1 and because he, you know, they were, they would come over for dinner and stuff like that. And he brought the cameras that I really, I just really I was playing around with the XT1 and just, thought, this is really nice. And I started to look at reviews of it and, um, and became aware of, of what Fuji were doing and was just sort of really impressed by, you know, the reviews that it had. So I thought, well, what I'll do is I'll, I'll get an X-T10, which is a really small one, and I'll have that as my carry-around camera, but I'll still keep my proper, my proper Nikon. Mm. Uh, and that was the plan. And uh, shortly after I started using the X-T10, Fuji in Portugal contacted me and, and, and we, we sat down and had a talk. And they they offered me you know the use of an xt1 and i was just about to go on a trip uh, to indonesia and i i was sitting there thinking okay I, I, this is an opportunity I, you know to work with fujifilm which i was was eager to explore and i didn't want to be taking um two different uh camera systems you know a full frame nikon and uh nikon and uh and the fuji system so i thought okay i'm going to try doing this trip with just the fuji and see how it comes out and i just I spent, you know, three weeks traveling around in easy shooting with the Fuji cameras and just loved them so much and, and enjoyed photography with them so much and was happy enough with the images that I just stopped picking up the Nikon. Mm. It was just an organic thing. It wasn't like a decision. It wasn't a plan. I just realized I wasn't using it anymore. And it's been a busy 12 to 18 months of Fuji, isn't it? I mean, new cameras, new lenses. Does, uh, does the X-T4 now take your fancy? I mean, you were talking about the X-T range. Yeah, I mean, it does. It's, it's got a few things. The, the Ibis thing is something that, as a, as a landscape shooter, where I'm mostly on a tripod, doesn't interest me that much. The Ibis wouldn't be something that, that would, would necessarily swap you, would it? No, but from a producing videos, it has a lot of features that I'm interested in. The Ibis is nice at doing very quick, spontaneous handheld shots, uh, getting B-roll and things like that. And just the little thing like the flippy screen, when you're sitting in front of the camera talking, it, it does make a difference. Uh, I'm probably going to get hold of it because it's, you know, with the relationship that I have with Fuji and one of the things that I do with YouTube is, is, is I review the cameras. So I'm, I'm probably going to get hold of it. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm really, oh, this is a whole different avenue, but I'm, I'm quite curious to see where Fuji are going with this. Because in the past, they've always, with each new iteration of a number, you know, the X-T1, the X-T2, X-T3, there's always been a, a step to the next um, generation of sensors and yeah. processor, but they haven't done that this time. They've kept the same processor. The same, the same. Yeah. It does look interesting. And I think from a video perspective, mm. it is a, it's a big jump. It's a very good video camera. This, I think, dovetails quite nicely because we, we've, we've come from kit to, to talking about your, your trips that you do and the workshops that you do. In your biog, I read this. I'm going to quote, I partner with Sustainable Travel International to ensure my workshops are as close to carbon neutral as possible by offsetting the carbon footprint and reducing the environmental impact. So number one, really, Andy, how is that impact lessened? What, what do sustainable travel as an organisation do to help you? 
Well, what they do, it's it's basically just carbon offsetting because we we're flying a lot, obviously, on the workshops, and it's it's something that I think we all need to pay more attention to. And all and obviously, we you know we have six people on the workshops who are coming often from the states or from Australia or New Zealand. So it was it was kind of nagging at me that we, in my in my life here, we my wife and I we try to live as sustainably as possible, but I was doing something that I thought was having quite a large impact. So I looked into ways in which we could re- reduce it and, uh, and, and was looking at things like carbon offsetting. And that's what uh, the Sustainable uh, Travel Organization does. So basically, I kind of sat down. They, they give you a questionnaire. So I sort of sat down and looked at the what's had a kind of average of what our carbon footprint was for, for, for different workshops. Uh, and each year we make a payment to offset that. Now, it, it's not ideal because carbon offsetting, it doesn't reduce your, your carbon footprint. What you're doing is, is balancing it by investing in projects that are, um, that are in, in sustainable energy or, or, or things like that in, in, developing, uh, in developing countries. But you're still, at the end of the day, you're paying to pollute. Uh, it's, so it's not ideal, but it was one of the things that I, I thought we could do to try to make things just a, a little bit better mm. with the workshops. I mentioned there was a part one. There's a part two because I've been looking at this with Kevin about a planned workshop and photo trip bundle in Iceland. And I started to wonder whether photography tours are becoming an eco problem or, or whether actually they're, they're just another part of tourism, which is very good because you're introducing people to new places. Yeah, it's it's a dilemma that I think you you know you have to deal with when you're doing something like this because you're introducing people to new places, but you're all also um, you're impacting the environment, and that that's unavoidable. With places like Iceland, and I, and I love Iceland, you you do get to you can see the impact of, in the environment, and I think for me it's one of the reasons why I like to work with small groups um, and try to keep things as, as small as possible. And that way we can, when we're out, you know, the, the impact that we're having in terms of the footprints and, and trampling plants and stuff like that, it's much easier to, you know, to make sure that doesn't happen, that things aren't getting left behind. But I think, you know, when you, we're going to the Faroe Islands this, this year for the first workshop and I was there last year. And I noticed there quite, that's a, Faroe Islands is, is how I imagine Iceland was maybe 12 years ago, uh, where they're just on the cusp of tourism really, really taking off there and um, kind of trying to find a way of dealing with that, not just in terms of the environment, but in terms of how you impact the local people, because what's happening in the Faroe Islands is that the tourist authority are pushing locations to visit and spots to go and shoot. Uh, which in many cases belong to farmers and stuff like that who haven't necessarily been consulted about about having photographers turn up on their land. So the Fair Islands is currently kind of um, dealing with that and finding ways of approaching that. I think, um, and I think as a photographer, and certainly when you're taking people to these areas, it's something that you need to be sensitive of. What are, what are your most popular um, tours then? I mean, the Dolomites tours look amazing. The Dolomites is kind of... is is the most popular and it's kind of the um it's the tool that we like the most my partner lives in the area and it's kind of how we got together was with a mutual love of the dolomites uh, and it's where we do most where we we kind of do most of what we do i, I love iceland and, and, and lofoten and places like that but 
the Dolomites is a place I can go back to again and again and again and again and again and never get bored. There's something mm. really special about the place. Just to mention Tom again, Thomas Heaton and his trip to the Himalayas. I mean, the Dolomites tours look, looks like you need to be. I know that Tom found the Himalayas particularly exhausting. I'm 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 thinking you need to be reasonably fit to go on some of these workshops, don't you? The same with the Dolomites, you need you need a level of fitness. The what Thomas is doing in the Himalayas was. He was also dealing with significant yeah, altitude. Yeah, yeah. And um, the Dolomites, you, you will feel it. We're at about 2,000 meters quite often. So you can feel a short, you know, walking up a hill is going to pull on your breath more. But I, I've been at, when, not on a workshop, but when I was traveling with my wife, we went to Chile and Bolivia to the Altiplano, and we spent a lot of that trip at four and a half, five thousand 5,000 meters, which is seriously high. And we found that even after you go past a certain height, something like 3,000 meters, even the smallest gain of 100 or 200 meters makes things worse. Mm. And I, you know, I, I fully sympathize with what was happening with Thomas because when you get past a certain altitude, things that you take for granted and that you think you can do easily suddenly get really, really hard. But the Dolomites, you're never going to be affected by nausea or headaches. You, you just, as soon as you do anything that requires, that's going to elevate your heart rate a little bit, you just notice it's a little bit harder to catch your breath. It's very difficult to find an average um, client, I'm, I'm sure. But, but um, well, I'll ask anyway. The average person that comes to, um, to, to you to a workshop, going to the Faroe Islands or, or these amazing trips to Norway or Iceland or, or the Dolomites, what are they hoping to achieve and, and what, what are you providing them with? It really depends. And, it de- and it, I think it differs from workshop to workshop because some places um, – People very much have, have come, I think this is true maybe sometimes in Iceland, with particular locations in mind that they've always wanted to photograph. I think that's less true in somewhere like the Dolomites, where we tend to not, you know, the spots are not as iconic, they're not as well known. Um, but I think ultimately, and it's a really bland answer, is people people want to improve their photography. Um and they want to do, but they also want to do it with an experience where they're in, where they're shooting in, in an incredibly beautiful place, and um, and in an environment which is very supportive, where they feel that they can make mistakes and where they feel that they can ask and that where they've got support to be able to, because a lot of landscape photography is is solving problems in the field. You know, you can talk about compositional rules and exposure rules, but every single location that you visit is going to provide you with something different. You know, you'll be trying to compose something, but there's often a compromise that you have to make because shooting at a certain focal length is going to mean including a particular element in the landscape. Uh, but then when you remove that by through shifting your camera, then the whole image unbalances and things like that. And these are things which is very specific. And you, 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 it's problem solving in the field, you know, how to compose a particular scene. And, and then it depends on what the light's doing. So I think people come because they want to, to learn how to do that, to be better at, at problem solving, to kind of gain the tools for their toolkit that they can use with, with their own photography. I think of, in particular, what you've just said, and I think of landscapes uh, and an interest in landscapes, whether it's an occupation or, or a hobby, that once it's got its teeth into you, you probably couldn't see yourself doing anything else at all. I, I can't imagine there's another genre or skill that's calling you, is there? <laughs> Not really. I mean, I enjoy a little bit of, of street photography when I travel. When, you know, trips that I've been in my wife, with my wife, places like Asia or Morocco, where I'm not shooting so much landscapes, I do enjoy shooting, you know, photographing people. It's quite fun. 
but but really you know landscape is always going to be what it's about and in terms of skills yeah but there're always going to be skills around landscape i you know learning video has been a new skill but it's been always to support you know landscape photography there are always new places that you want to visit places that you want to see there are things that i would love to do i'd love to visit i'd love to visit greenland or namibia but at the same time i love going back every year to to the mountains i love just being there and i think that's a key thing for landscape photography i think people who who are into landscape photography are fascinated by the landscape and being there in those places in in a magnificent place you know standing in front of a mountain when the sun rises and feeling that is certainly for me is what drives the photography because you want to try to find a way to communicate that feeling even if no one is ever going to see the image you're trying to almost make sense of of how you're feeling because there's an awe there you know when you're standing in a beautiful place and everything around you is is stunning and i think the camera in many ways is a way of kind of trying to distill and refine that experience into an image but to do that you have to be passionate about the place anyway you know about, about being in those places and i think that's something that you never lose and never goes away Our thanks to Andrew Mumford and you'll find links to his site work and workshops in the show notes and of course on the website fujicast.co.uk next to this episode so back to our XT4 special this week, The Beast. It's launched, it's here. And for those who like to employ use of the video button, this perhaps is the answer to your dreams. You can shoot super slow-mo at over 200 frames a second. There's a new very filmic color space. And of course, uh, in-body image stabilization. Second part of our post-touchy-feely time with the camera. We're still in the oily F-stop pub. Time to talk video. So then we've dealt with um, stills. Let's deal with the video side of the camera. For me, that's the most exciting part. For me, that's why I would buy an X-T4 and be prepared to let my X-T3s and my X-H1 um, go. Although I'll probably keep one of those, those bodies as a backup. But, but um, it, it's impressive in terms of filming. Yeah, it seems to be. I mean, the, uh, you know, the, the slow motion, was it 240 frames per second? Yep. I would think. Um, and also, it's like this little neat little feature with the um, MP4 filming. So, if you're a vlogger or Instagrammer or you know influencer, and you want to just make a kind of much more lightweight clip, you can uh, you can Wi-Fi that to your phone, and up it goes to the internet pretty quick. Well, that's important because a lot of the time you, t- you take these films down, dump it down into Premiere or, or, or Final Cut or whatever you use, and then you've got to go through this process of of taking that file size down and down and down until till Instagram accept it. Now you're making it particularly for the uh, for the medium. Yeah, and also the uh, the new film simulation was called Bleach Bypass. Um, that looked pretty interesting. But I also liked from a filming point of view the uh, I thought was was pretty cool was the F log kind of assist I suppose if you like to call it that where you know when you film with F-Log and it's pretty flat and it's you know you, you kind of look at the screen and you can't quite figure out whether the exposure's right but then they have this nice little assist thing where you can it gives you a little it gives the film uh, an image a bit of a pop so you can see all of the highlights and shadows and stuff that's pretty neat so one thing we didn't mention was that there was a, another feature about working in low light now th- this this will count for filming and stills where you can now see more accurately 
what you're trying to compose within the screen in a dark arena. Yeah, and we tried that, didn't we? What do they call it? Boost priority. The boost priority has got several different um, uh, levels now, and one of them being low light, which I think for us wedding photographers, you and I, that is, of course, not everybody listening is a wedding photographer, is going to find that really interesting because essentially you're saying to the camera, in boost mode I want you to concentrate on uh, elevating the, the scene a little bit and uh, you know, it's almost like the old kind of um, focus assist beams that you used to get so the camera's doing that some kind of wizardry going on inside brightening everything up uh, and it's got kind of minus 6 EV focus assist as it is anyway in the camera so it's going to be going to be pretty cool to see how that works out how that pans out um, you know one of the challenges that I have as a a natural light shooter or available light shooter is in low light you know it does get a little bit tricky uh you know and i've i've kind of learned to live with that in terms of the way that i handle the cameras and the metering approach that i take um but it'll be really interesting to see how that kicks in right battery not everybody's going to be happy with this because suddenly there's there's uh, there's another battery to to add to your collection uh for all those people who have said i'd like a battery that lasts longer they should be happier but of course they're going to say i've got 12 15 batteries and now i've got to buy new batteries this battery lasts a lot longer seems to be um of course we haven't been able to try out the battery in its entirety but yeah it seems like the battery is going to last a lot longer um we did get to look at the grip a little bit as well so you can you're going to be able to put two batteries in the grip um which means you're going to have three batteries loaded in the camera and that's that's looking like you're good to go for you know a real long period of time um, charging they've got the, the kind of USB-C charging going on so you're going to be able to charge the whole lot in kind of three hours or so with the right adapter um, yeah it all looks all looks pretty promising from the battery point of view you know we can't we, can't, we live in that world where people are going on about you know the batteries don't last long enough batteries don't last long enough and then the only way to deal with that is by changing it changing the capacity and so no the batteries last longer and there you go that's that's real life all in all as as a as a user of a camera do you think those that film with this are going to be happier or those that photograph with this are going to be happier um oh, you know it's hard to say because i do both so i would say that i mean by and large if you're a filmmaker or you're you're using aps sensors cameras for making films then the xt4 is is going to crush it for you i guess um you know, currently the XH1, the toss-up is between the XH1 and the XT3. Uh, my preference has always been the XT line over the XH line. And now the XT4 kind of takes the best of both those cameras and brings it all together in one even better situation. Smaller than the XH1, has IBIS, has the fully articulating screen, has new film simulation, also has the new kind of AF sensors and the face detection and all of that stuff. So the XT4 seems to be the way to go for those who want to shoot kind of film. Stills, you know, it's it's going to come down to preference again on body choice, isn't it? You know, XT3 is my, uh, sorry, X-Pro3 is my preferred style um, of body. XT4 does offer uh, a lot of benefits over the X-Pro3 in terms of the functionality of the camera. But ergonomically and stylistically, you know, your your mileage is going to vary. It's it's really down to a personal choice there. You've always said to me that you, you don't want a camera that suddenly feels like it's the same weight as a, a DSLR. And I think that was what was that was what was being said in, in on social media that suddenly Fuji were gonna create a massive camera because it had IBIS in it. This 
to me doesn't feel like it's a lot heavier it isn't a lot heavier at all it doesn't feel like it's a lot bigger it isn't a lot bigger bigger at all is it no i, I you know i think that's what happened with the xh1 you know and and i i mean i remember making a film on my youtube channel saying we need to talk about the xh1 i never bought the xh1 i didn't like the xh1 I, I thought it was too big it went away from the ethos that i thought that had been inherent in the camera systems that i'd chosen to to kind of invest in but that's one camera and that was my choice it wasn't doesn't mean it was a bad camera it was a very good i mean you use it you use it very well doesn't mean it's a bad camera but the xh system created this kind of problematic paradigm for fujifilm in that they they suddenly had a camera with ibis with this fast mechanism faster and a great filming technique uh yet effectively people were saying yeah we want that but we want it in a smaller body in an xt body which of course at the time was not possible and and they've they've gone away they've pedaled fast and they've whipped the the, the fairies harder and, and they've got the they've got the ibis in there and, and a trip advisor rating i think they come out of five don't they trip advisor ratings come on then trip advisor rating for an for an xt4 although to be fair we we between us have only had a, an hour and a half two hours with it come on what, what do you think well you know you've got you've got to be looking at four four and a half you know where does it lose the half for you well i think that it's because you know in my little simplistic brain now which is very small and very welsh and very you know kind of grumpy i i I, i'm now thinking i want all of that stuff in an xt4 in an x pro body without the flip screen and stuff so you know that's that's my it's that thing isn't it you know that 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 triangle of lust that you get with cameras you always want a little bit of something that you can't get um, I can't give it a five because everybody would just go, oh, you're an ambassador. You, so what about you? You have to give it a number. Yeah, well, see, for me, it's going to feature really high because I want a really good movie camera. And I think this is the first Fuji camera that does that for me. Um, I really, I, I seriously think it does. I haven't had enough time to play with the, the focus. That's still, for me the, that's still for me the jury out area is focus. I've played with Sony Focus, and I really like it. Will Fuji do the same thing? I've not had enough time to play this time, but will it do the same thing? Well, we, I, when I was shooting with it this afternoon, it was it was noticeably quicker, noticeably quicker. So I, you know, and I never really have any problems with it. Um, oh yeah, yeah, go for it. Man. <laughs> do you think he wants to comment on the XT4? Yeah, yeah he's going to be famous. Um, so you know, I never really have any issues with it, and and you know. You, you should come on one of my workshops and learn how to focus properly. <laughs> I probably should. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm. I am a true manual focuser. Um, I'm, I'm. I'm very faithful to the manual focusing when it comes to, to to working with film and movies. Yeah. So you're talking about filming, like stills wise. I mean, this camera is shooting what 15 frames per second. For the people who, as we say, spray and pray, of which I have no opinion or comment. Uh, you know, everybody shoots differently then they're going to love it and also you know don't don't lose sight of the fact that we are in olympic year so this camera is is the fastest and quickest camera that fujifilm have ever produced it's going to be it's going to be used at the olympics it's going to be aimed at people who want speed want accuracy and you know all of those various things are, are just going to kind of come at this time of the year and i'm sure other camera manufacturers will be producing stuff as well but you know ultimately that's makes sense for fujifilm to bring the xt4 out now uh then it does say the x pro 3 now you know this is this is the time of the year that people are bringing these cameras out we should have an affiliate link 
No, no, no. We're doing something. We've done very well with our tip jar. People have been very kind. Thank you to everybody who's given us our tip jar, especially, especially the one person who sent us five pence. <laughs> Thank you for the five pence. Yeah, that's going to make a lot of difference. Some more of your non-XT4 questions about photography coming up very, very soon, including some state of the business of photography stuff toward the end of the show. But just to wrap up our XT4 business in the oily F-stop as we went on tour this week, back in the studio next week, uh, we're in the oily F-stop, London's finest pub hangout for anyone photographically inclined. We were joined by Andreas Georgiadis, marketing manager at Fujifilm UK. And whilst Kev is celebrating another year of ex-photographer status, uh, I'd like to reiterate that uh, the touch and try with the new camera is not sponsored. We sadly had to give the kit back at the end of the afternoon, but I was personally keen to understand a little bit more about the launch. So collared Andreas to learn about what's been a, a hectic period for the camera company. Andreas has, has returned. Um, he, he left us alone, really, to discuss the camera, which is probably the appropriate thing. But um, how many more cameras can you release in a year? Um, I think that if the team in Japan released more cameras... Uh, the marketing team here would would actually resign. Um, yeah, I think that we've had a very busy six months, probably the busiest six months um, I can ever remember in Fujifilm. Um, we've had Pro 3 um, in the UK. We then had the launch of the House of Photography. We came back from that. We had the announcement of XT200 and a few lenses. We uh, helped organise the X-Summit and then X100V and now XT4 um, and then photography show um, in a week or two. So I think we're good. So with your marketing head on, what does the X-T4 bring that those that might have been waiting for an X-H2 perhaps doesn't bring? Um, well, well, you know my feelings about talking about future non-existent product. I know that. So I felt a bit unfair asking it. But for me, the X-T4 ticks all the boxes that people, um, when the X-T3 was launched, said, oh, well you've upgraded all the video features but i needed xyz i a tilt screen or the battery life isn't as good or there's no image stabilization and it just rounds everything off and, and it just finishes off our lineup currently very nicely so you've got xt4 for professional video um still shooters um on the move and what have you you've got xt3 because um, ultimately it uses the same sensor and processor for people who um, might not need the IBIS, might be landscape shooters, so it's ever only ever going to sit on a tripod, um, so you won't see any benefits there. And then you've got, for your purists, your X-Pro 3s and um, your X100V and something a little bit smaller, the X-T30. And then for the blogger-vlogger entry creator, someone just getting into things, you've got your XA70, your X-T200. It's a very exciting lineup that we've got now and the X-T4 I feel rounds it off nicely so I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm very interested in the filming um, capabilities of the X-T4 and of course Sony for a very long time now have been considered by those who shoot social uh, wedding uh, mainly weddings I suppose as the place to to have gone is Sony. Surely this has to be Fuji's opportunity to say, look, there's another player now. I mean, the thing is, I'm not going to diss Sony products because uh, I used to work for them. So um, they are they are great bits of electronics, but for me, they've always felt a little bit soulless. Um, 
while on paper the specifications add up they don't seem to be a well-rounded package and while i appreciate firmware updates have been a bit a little bit thin on the ground i think that everyone can see now what our engineering team have been up to in terms of actually getting the products out there so do i feel that this is really gonna bash the door down hard on those a7 mark III and um users um definitely the autofocus performance the mechanical shutter how quiet the mechanical shutter is the ibis performance six and a half stops it is the the total package um and the complete solution for anyone shooting stills or video for me i'm gonna ask you to dig deep into your your honesty um pocket here in the last week you've had um journalists look at the camera you've had these touch and feel days how has the reaction been from from uh the photographic community and journalist wise um so so the feedback's been really really positive from from everyone and and it's it's quite interesting to see um people um, who normally are so critical of your products actually are a bit flummoxed and a bit stumped as to what they can complain about why why um primarily because as as a society as a culture we always prefer to moan than to praise um and naturally everyone always goes to a conclusion of a review and sees right what did everyone hate about it and things like that but with the xt4 after the the hands-on sessions we've had with journalists they've gone yep hit it out of the park you're onto a winner and obviously they haven't tested it to within an inch of its life or anything like that but um all the feedback we've had has been really really positive the customers obviously love the the product as well and we've given the features that they've been asking for like the ibis unit like the uh, silent shutter that they had mechanical shutter that they had on x1 like the bigger battery things like that can we please everyone all the time no but it'd be boring if we did so when's the xh2 out Do you like the silence, Kev? <laughs> total silence, yeah. Yeah, total silence. I don't blame him either. That was a horrible question. Well, you can't blame a man for at least trying on your behalf, can you? And so with our pre-production loaners snatched from our grasps, we made our way back through the London rush hour traffic to sit and eat vegan bakes on Paddington's Platform 1 to await trains back home. Just about ten minutes of free time to delve into the digital mailbag one final time for the week. Kev, how on earth did you do this every day of your life for how many years? Oh, thousands. Thousands and thousands and thousands of years. No, about four or five years. Yeah, every day, Paddington Station, your train has been cancelled. Let's move on. Let's, let's get some questions. Last part of the show. This week's been a bit different to usual, of course, because we've not been in the studio. But uh, we, we've been able to talk about the, the launch of the Fujifilm X-T4. Right, friend of the show, Brad Wakefield. Hey, speaking to a friend of mine today who shoots Premiership football, he mentioned that some of the photographers he works with that are shooting Sony are suffering from headaches. They think it's down to straining whilst looking at a mirrorless viewfinder. After all, it's just a screen. I, for one, sometimes do miss the optical viewfinder. Do you think this is an issue moving forwards? Will we all spend a lot of time looking at our, our screens? And, and will a mirrorless viewfinder make this experience any different? Well, it's an interesting one because, actually, I, I'm going to concur with with Brad here that when I used the X-Pro2, I found my, my eyes were really strained. Yeah, I I distinctly remember shooting one wedding with the XT1 where I I got dizzy. You know, I was looking in the viewfinder and I actually felt dizzy, and I just put it down to to the uh, to the electronic viewfinder. But I think generally uh, over time, as the cameras the refresh rate has got faster, the you know it's it's gone away as a problem. But yeah, I mean, some people may react to it more than others. I don't ever have headaches from it. 
I don't feel dizzy any longer. It only happened a couple of times, but perhaps some people it could happen to. But you use the X-Pro3 and the X-T3, so those um, EVFs are much larger. The the X-Pro2, that EVF was a bit titchy, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, the EVF is not, not as big for sure, but... I think it's more about the refresh rate of the of the frames inside the EVF rather than the size of it. That's what I would suggest is probably causing them issues, if anything. Have you got a question there? Okay, this is from Edward Hubbard. And Edward says, I'm an XT3 owner for all of 13 days and now through 22 episodes of the back catalogue of the show. Thank you, Edward. I have the XF16-80 f4, which I think is brilliant, but would like a second, smaller lens with a lower aperture for more candid work and once in a while some shallower depth of field. I'm relatively positive that the 27mm lens has not been mentioned once on the show. Neil. If so, what gives? It seems I would have a lot to commend it, including a small size and lowish aperture. Uh, as someone trying to decide between 23 and 35mm, am I missing something by trying to split the difference? Too much of a compromise? Or is it an answer to a question that no one is asking? Thanks, love the show. Yada, 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 yada. Well, I think we have talked about that lens. I think we've talked about I'm sure we have. Uh, last week, just this week, I sold my 27mm lens. I never use it, ever. It's gone went to MBP, went to the great camera company in the sky um, never use it I used to use it a bit but I think it is a very small lens no I tell you who I thought was using it but he wasn't he was using the 18mm uh, was Facundo San- Santana yeah he's, use- he's using the 18mm and 27mm is very different so 27mm um, yeah very small doesn't have an aperture ring which I, I hated I like to change the aperture yeah. so I kept it for a few good few years and now it's gone 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 I would definitely go for the 23 or the 35 there's, there's your answer. Um, this one's from... Oh, look, this is rather relevant. Paul in... Guess where? Swindon. I apologise, by the way, Paul, for our joshing when we mentioned Swindon and uh, weddings in Swindon in particular. Um, Neil, you recently mentioned that you shoot 25 frames a second aimed to keep the shutter speed at 150th. Um, as being a direct multiple, I get that logic. My cameras, though, have 160th when set manually. Is that close enough, or should I then be capturing uh, 30 frames a second instead of the, the nearest direct multiple of 160th? Uh, it's an interesting question, isn't it? Because if you haven't got that, then there's nothing you can do about it, is there, really? And yeah, what cameras are you using? I don't know, he doesn't say, but clearly I don't think they're Fujifilm cameras, are they? Uh, well, if it's a Fujifilm camera, are you you can adjust the dial on the top or the uh, you know the, the shutter speed it will only go to 160th oh maybe that's where it's getting it wrong because you can you can use the back the back um, dial can't you rear, rear command dial to change it to 50 and that's it yep um, if there's you know there's nothing you can do about it I mean 150th helps me for the frequency of light and anti-flicker but if there's nothing you can do about it then um uh, <laughs> change your camera system um, do you use auto cue or memorise printed scripts when recording your videos guys as your delivery always seems to flow naturally and doesn't sound like you're reading to the listener what do you use when you're doing your YouTube I actually use a thing called a parrot teleprompter which is absolutely such a pain in the royal backside you would not believe it it falls over all the time it's just atrocious but it kind of works and I've got it and I've paid for it and I don't want to pay for anything else so yeah I use it so auto cue for you is the way for 
Yeah, sorry, very long-winded way of saying yes. Yes, autocue. And P.S. As Kevin thought aperture numbers, episode 54, relative to 1.4, f1.4, is the same light transmission on any focal length. Um, size of the physical opening changes according to focal length, which is what mainly affects the change in effective depth of field. There we are, let's put pause. We were talking about that. Yeah, that's what I said. Your question. Uh, okay, I have one from Lance Upton. Uh, Lance is from the greatest city on earth, NYC, New York City. He says, hi, guys. Isn't it Merthyr Titful? <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. Interesting to hear a question recently on listening to music whilst working. I know you listen to audiobooks while driving, Kevin, and I think Neil said he listens to podcasts, usually. But I wonder what music inspires you when you're editing. I find re- music really models the way I treat photos when post-processing. That's interesting. So what moves you both? And a question for the listeners also. So keep up the good work. Well, a lot of my editing actually takes place late at night. We're watching Netflix. Oh, I can't watch anything while I'm editing. Uh, I listen to... I've got my... I've sorted my studio out recently, so I've got my record player back up and running. I'm listening to a lot of Glenn Campbell, Guy Clark, Tens Van Zandt, Steve Earle, Emmylou Harris, Nancy Griffiths. I'm listening to a lot of that now. I find it really sad to watch Glenn Campbell now because I thought that was a really sad end to his career. What, dying? Well, yeah, obviously. But the way that he went, he couldn't remember his songs on stage and stuff. I... I found that really difficult to watch. It was. I went to one of his last concerts in Cardiff and his, his daughter had to keep prompting him to tell him what to do next. Yeah, it was very sad. But a living legend. In fact, I've got, I've got his T-shirt on. The one that Ben Gillett gave me at the x Weddings conference. No way! Yeah, Glenn Campbell T-shirt, yeah. Wichita Lineman is one of my favourite songs ever. Yeah, a lot of good songs. Right, um, last one of the show then. Thomas Verhoeven sent in a survey. So it's not so much a question but a survey. I thought you might like to join in with this. Thanks, Thomas, because um, there's some interesting takeaways or revelations. Um, this piece in its entirety, by the way, is on Petapixel, but um, your perfect wedding photographer, there's a website that vets and connects wedding photographers with interested couples, has released the results of their fourth annual photographer survey, and it contains some interesting info about how much photographers are making, the brands that they're using, and how much they spend their, their you know on their work time and much more. So here we go. Wedding photographers spend only 4% of their time actually taking pictures yeah i always say i always say to people 10 percent taking pictures 90 percent business so they say the vast majority 55 percent is spent on photo editing followed by business admin 18 percent culling 11 percent and communication seven percent all right average number of weddings shot in a year 28 down from 29 last year yeah mine were down for sure that's only one isn't it mine were down a few more than that although saying that average is is very very weird like i never work in august so my average is always very peculiar average full day starting package 1590 um so has that gone down at all i don't know it's, it's very difficult because you're you're asking a percentage of, of photographers um probably the perfect wedding photographer doesn't does not necessarily um attract the higher end of photographer does it no i wouldn't have said so and you know i always think these these kind of at the end of the day, the only people who are uh, gaining anything from these questionnaires are the, the, your perfect wedding photographer website is driving a lot of traffic to itself, to its website. If your bookings are down, your bookings are down. If your bookings are up, your bookings are up. Here's an interesting one. Only 59% of photographers surveyed list their prices on their website. How important is it to list your prices on your website? Honestly, again, it's whatever works for you. If you don't list your website, your prices on your website and you get 100 bookings, carry on don't listen to it if you're not and you you fancy changing it do it you know it's like i hate all this stuff 59 percent of photographers don't list their prices on their website 
Who get? What does that mean? It means nothing. It means that forty-one. Uh, what's fifty-nine? It's the other way around. Fifty-nine percent actually do put their prices. So fifty-nine, but that means that forty-one. Uh, hang on, is that right? Fifty-nine plus forty-one is that hundred? <laughs> uh, you know, do or don't or whatever it is. And does that make our lives any different? No, not really. Um, and then uh, there is one final one. Yanis uh, Mastrait, who's uh, based in Turkey. We're seriously thinking of Turkey for a holiday this year. Or we're coming over to Spain with you guys, I think. Hi, Mr. James and Mr. Mullin. You've been downgraded. You've got no S there. Yeah, you talked about the new XT4 or whatever number it will become on your, uh, on your London one-year birthday show. I'm a video shooter, waiting to see if the focus has been improved in any of the new cameras. I'm hoping this will be the case, as many of my friends talk about the dual pixel on the Canon or the Sony focus systems. Well, today's been a show about XT4, and we uh, think together that the um that the focus system is 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 good yeah i'd say it's much better i know about dual pixel i don't really know what that means but i don't i don't remember that being seeing that on any of the specs so yeah it's definitely quicker definitely quicker there's an answer for you right that's it um this week's been a bit of a different show uh we're back in the studio for next week but we were invited up to go and uh, hold the xt4 in our hands and uh, and see what we thought of it. Hopefully, we've um, we, we've 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 answered a few of your questions that you may have in your mind about it. Uh, and we will see you on the show, the sort of normal show next week. Bye bye. Our thanks to Andrew Mumford and Andrea Georgiadis for guesting on the show this week. Links to Andrew's work in particular on the show notes page, and of course links to our individual personal pages at fujicast.co.uk forward slash the boys. Main theme as ever from Blue Wednesday with additional soundtrack from the incredible artlist.io. If you want to contact the show with your questions, Fujifilm or non-Fujifilm style, uh, feedback or life stories because your experiences help others, or to join in with the, the two specials on personal projects and mental health, then the address you need to use is click at fujicast.co.uk, click at fujicast.co.uk. And we'll meet up with you in the Fujicast Facebook group for anything you want to discuss on this week's show as usual. Alex, as ever, over to you for the final words. The FujiCast is an independent Loading Zone production. Email the show with your questions and words of wisdom to click at fujicast.co.uk. Email any complaints and political nonsense to our wives who will deal with your comments in their own good time and in their own good way.